Hear the word of our Lord from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Seated. What a joyful thought that is to think about the day when you are no longer bound by the limitations of this fallen fleshly body. When, when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then you will sing a nobler song. You'll sing his power to save in a much more noble way. Well, why don't we start by praying together this morning. Father, we, we have just sung of glorious truths. Lord, we've just sung of, of matters about which angels long to look, or those who behold your face in glory, long to look into the things we were just singing about. And yet if we confessed, or the real state of our hearts, we would be honest with you and say our hearts weren't in it the way they should have been. We weren't seeing the glory of what we were singing the way we ought to have seen it. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would purify us this morning. Help us offer unto you a holy and living sacrifice. Lord, we don't want to offer to you a dead sacrifice. We don't want to lift a dead offering up to you on the altar. Lord, on the altar of grace and this altar of the gospel, we want to put a living sacrifice on there. We want our whole lives, all that we are, to be put upon that altar and consecrated to you in holy worship. Father, forgive us for our negligence this past week. Or that we have not sought you the way that we should have sought you. We've, we've not remembered your testimonies, Lord. We've not ordered our steps by your commandments. We've not been diligent and faithful in applying the gospel to our lives the way you call us to. Lord, so much this last week we've fallen into despair. We've We've fallen into and stumbled into sin. 
We've not obeyed your command to set our minds on things above where Christ is at the right hand of God. Lord, we have not heeded the command to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to make no provision for the flesh. We've not sought you the way we should have, Lord, and we've not lived for you the way we should have. We've not walked in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And so much of that is because we don't take the time to labor to understand the glory and the beauty and the wonder of that calling that you've placed upon us to belong to you and your Son. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for our sin. That you would cleanse us this morning. Lord, you would lift before our eyes the wonder of this life that you call us to live in fellowship with you. Lord, give us clarity and help us walk in a manner that is pleasing in your sight. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. May my own heart be rejoicing in it. Bless the hearing of your word, Lord. May we hear it rightly, have ears to receive and hear what you have to say to us this morning. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned in the announcements, um, Before we move into the Gospel of John, we're going to have a short buffer series titled Growing in Grace. And last week we saw in 1 Timothy that the letter of 1 Timothy ends with a prayer that believers would experience and know in greater measures the wonders and the empowerment of God's grace. That they would have greater influences of His grace upon them and within them. That the grace of God would be more powerful in its workings among them. And as I tried to point out, a life that is truly Christian requires constant growth in our understanding and in our experience of grace. I like how Hebrews 13.9 puts it. It says that it is good for us to have our hearts strengthened with grace. Not merely our minds being strengthened with the facts of grace, not merely understanding with our minds more about the workings of grace, but actually experiencing the great power of God's grace in our hearts. Having our souls resting upon the grace of God. That's where we ended last week, and it seemed good to me that we would try to understand a little bit more of how we can have our hearts strengthened in God's grace before we move on to the Gospel of John. Now, I have something that I want to share here at the beginning, and I really need you to pay attention to what I'm about to say. Focus in, pay attention, 
listen, think about, meditate upon what I'm about to say. Because I don't want any confusion to enter into your minds about the emphasis that I'm going to have as we walk through this short series on growing in grace. When we talk about growing in grace, we are not merely talking about our mental conception of what grace means. That's important. That's absolutely necessary. But if it doesn't go further than that, then you are not yet tasting the grace of God. You can know about it all day and not be one who is actually a participant in that grace. Already a number of times I've spoken of experiencing God's grace. I don't want there to be any confusion about what I mean by that. In some ways, it's dangerous to throw phrases out there because we live in an experience-driven society. We live in a society that thrives and lives upon the next experience, the next thing, right? the next thing around the corner. And as we've seen in our own uh, country, a lot of error has crept into the church through this emphasis on experience. And so when someone starts talking about having experiences in the Christian life, in some ways it rightly causes the godly believer to pause and to be on guard. However, what I want to make sure that we're not doing when we talk about the experience of God's grace, I want to make sure that we are not allowing other people's abuses of a good thing to cause us to reject the good thing altogether. Just because someone abuses something doesn't mean that it's wrong in and of itself. It means that person is wrong. Just because someone abuses experience in the Christian life does not mean that experience in the Christian life is wrong or that it is unnecessary for living faithfully for the Lord Jesus Christ. We should especially keep that in mind when we find the scriptures describing experiences in grace as being a vital part of a healthy Christian life. When God draws our attention to the need to experience grace, I want to make very clear that he is not talking about some mindless, irrational, emotional frenzy. He's not talking about getting us worked up into some emotional high, right? Like that we would get at some, I mean, I don't get them at Christian concerts, but maybe some people get emotionally high at Christian concerts or whatever, at some conference. You get really excited about something that you experience in the conference. I remember uh, going to a, uh, oh, what is that, that men's gathering for purity. I can't remember the name of it. It's probably by the providence of, what is that? Promise Keepers, yeah. I remember going to Promise Keepers. 45,000 men singing Amazing Grace. Nothing like it. Nothing like it. Great experience. But how much of those experiences actually bear fruit when we leave that conference and go about living our daily lives, right? 
So a lot of them fall short of what the scriptures are talking about whenever the scriptures call us to have real, legitimate experiences with God's grace in our lives. So when God's talking about experiencing his grace, he's not talking about mindless, irrational, emotional frenzy. He's not simply talking about being worked up into spiritual highs. Experiencing God's grace means that by the internal operations of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we are brought to have and possess a genuine, true, and abiding sense of the reality of God's grace and its application to our lives. You guys didn't catch that. You're like, man, that was a lot of words. Can you read that again, please? Yeah, let me read that again. When the scriptures are talking about experiencing God's grace, it is talking about the result of the internal operations of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts. Do you have that? Do you know that? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, God has sealed our hearts in the Lord Jesus Christ by pouring the Spirit of God upon us. Do you know the Spirit of God in your heart? Experiencing God's grace, these internal operations of the Holy Spirit, taking the truth of God's grace revealed in His Word and pressing it in upon us. So that it's not just in the mind. It's not something that you're just mentally conceiving conceiving of and trying to convince yourself of. This is true. I need to convince myself to believe it. No, it is the movement of the Holy Spirit taking that which is true and pressing it in upon the depths of your heart so that you know it's true. Its truthfulness is pressed in upon you. And its application to your life is automatically received. Not that it doesn't need to be worked out. But it has a real, legitimate, tangible experience that applies to your daily life. And maybe that still wasn't clear. Experiencing God's grace means, by the internal operations of the Holy Spirit on our hearts... Receiving a genuine conviction of the truthfulness of God's grace that floods our souls with a sense of awe and wonder. That our hearts aren't like what the Psalms say when it describes the ungodly as having hearts that are unfeeling like fat. That when we hear the truth of God, when we hear the glory of His grace, when we see the glory of God, spiritually see the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ, we are not sitting under the revelation of that unaffected. It's it's working in us. It's causing a change in our lives. It is the birth of genuine conviction of the truthfulness of God's grace that floods our souls with a sense of wonder and awe that then leads us as individuals to cast ourselves upon it in full reliance and trust in the God of grace. Charles Hodge described this experience of God's grace as the inward influence of the Spirit 
that increases the power of God's grace in our soul. It increases the power of God's grace in our soul. Not that it increases the power of grace itself, but in our souls we grow in a deeper experience of that power of God's grace. And we are changed. Now that is what I'm going to be pressing upon us as we walk through this series I'm not pressing upon us a greater mental understanding of what it means to walk in the grace of God. That's necessary, and I'm going to be giving that. But I'm pressing us to go further than that and to have the knowledge of God's grace bear real and tangible fruit in our lives. Otherwise, this is a waste, and we ought to be doing something else. Now today we're, we're simply going to be introducing this series. So our main thought for today from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it's not going to be a full exposition of these verses. We wouldn't make it through that today. What it's going to be, we are going to look at 2 Peter 3.18 to see that God calls us to grow in grace. And then we are going to ask the question, how do we do that? So you've got the call to grow in grace, and then we have to ask the question, how do we do that? Look with me in that verse. Verse 18 in particular, 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that is a call to grow in grace, and that is our first main point. A call to grow in grace. Now, scriptures make clear that all growth in the Christian life comes from the sovereign hand and working of God. If we're going to grow in the Christian life, it is only because God in his sovereign power comes alongside of us and begins to help us grow. He makes us grow. He causes us to grow. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Paul planted... Apollos watered, but who was giving the growth? God was causing the growth. God caused the growth. And so when the truth of God's word is sown into our hearts, it will only begin to come alive and bear fruit in us if God chooses to make that happen. In fact, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3 says that this is not only the case at the beginning of the Christian life, this is the case all throughout the Christian life. Because after exhorting these Christians and pointing out the need that they have to grow and mature in Christ, the writer to the Hebrews says, this we will do if God permits. You need to grow in Christ. You need to move beyond the elementary principles of Christ. And you're only going to do that if God lets you do it. That's what the writer of the Hebrews says. Now, if that's true, and 2 Peter 3.18 calls us to grow in grace, how are we supposed to think about this? If we can only grow if God makes us grow in grace, how are we to understand the command, the responsibility that's placed upon us to make sure that we're growing in grace? Does it mean that we just simply sit around and wait for God to bring about growth in our lives? 
God is going to give us the growth if he permits. He's going to cause the growth. Therefore, I don't need to worry about growing. God's going to make it happen. Now, I know we can scoff at that, but I've heard people legitimately make those kinds of claims without realizing what they were saying. I don't want to pursue holiness. If God wants me to, I guess he's going to give me the desire to. I don't want to pursue God in prayer. If he wanted me to come to him in prayer, he's going to give me the desire to come to him in prayer. They don't ever say it like that, but that's what they're saying. God's sovereignty in our growth in the Christian life does not mean that we just sit back and wait for God in his sovereignty to choose to move us around like pawns on a chessboard. That is what some, that is how some twist the truth of God's sovereignty. And in essence, they turn it into nothing more than an excuse for their indifference and their negligence. But passages like 2 Peter 3.18 leave no room for us to think that way. It is true that we will not grow unless God allows us to grow. We will not grow in grace unless God permits us to grow in grace. And yet at the same time, God commands us, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We can't deny that. And so now we need to seek to understand, what does it mean then to grow in grace? It's interesting, this word here for grow in 2 Peter 3.18 is a command. It is something that we are commanded to do. Not only is it a command, but the way it's written in Greek, this is a continual command. This is something we are to continue to be doing. We never stop doing this. It's not a once and done thing. It's not like a flu, well, flu shots are repeated. I don't know. It's not like something you just get once and then you're done. (laughs) There we go. This is something you are constantly to be laboring towards in your Christian life. You are always to be seeking to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus. Now that means that even though growth in the Christian is dependent on the sovereignty of God, God has determined that that growth will not happen unless we are willing to strive for it. Only God has the power to make us grow, but here the Holy Spirit tells us that we are responsible to make sure that that growth is happening. And so now the question, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we make sure that we are growing in grace? I mean, just if we are responsible to do something that we cannot do in ourselves, how can God be commanding us to do it? Well, as godly men and women in church history have wrestled with that question, seeing these very realities in Scripture and wrestling with them, trying to come to an understanding, they came to the conclusion, they saw in Scripture, that God not only calls us to grow in grace, but He also gives us clear instructions about how to do that. His Word tells us that we can and we will grow in grace by walking in the paths where He has promised that His grace will be found. These paths are often referred to as the means of grace. The means of grace. That we will only grow in grace if we are diligent in using the means that God has established to grow in grace. 
But this command in 1 Peter 3.18 makes clear that growth in the Christian life is not just going to happen on its own. In fact, Charles Hodge again commented on this. He said, our relationship with God will wither unless by the use of the appointed means it is caused to grow. Do you sense any withering in your walk with the Lord? Do you sense your heart growing cold towards Christ? Do you sense a love for sin increasing within you? Do you sense a numbness to spiritual realities happening all around you? Beloved, those are warnings that are calling you to renew your commitment to pursue the Lord according to the means He's appointed for you. We grow in grace by using the means of grace. Now, what are we talking about when we throw around that phrase, means of grace? Has anyone ever heard of that? Years ago, I asked that question, and nobody heard, had heard of the means. What is that? Well, analogies are always helpful for us. They help us understand what something is like. So if we use the analogy, for example, of Jude 20, where we are commanded as Christians to build ourselves up on our most holy faith. That's picturing us as a house. Right? We're constructing this house. We're building ourselves up on our most holy faith. If we use that analogy of building a house, then the means of grace would be the tools that God gives us to do the work. In fact, one of them is right here in this verse. We are building ourselves up in our most holy faith. One of those means that God gives us to do that is praying in the Holy Spirit. It's a tool that he's given us to build ourselves up in the Lord. Or we could take the analogy of Colossians 2, verse 7. That we are like plants. And we have been firmly rooted in Christ. Those who have been firmly rooted in Christ... It says that they are to build themselves up and to be established in him. Now, if we think of the plant analogy, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, if we have our tap roots going down into the Lord Jesus Christ, then the means of grace are the things that we use to nourish the root. If we've been firmly rooted in Christ then the means of grace are the nutrients and the water, the sunlight that we give to the plant so that the plant will then grow and flourish in Christ. And if you know anything about plants, if you don't water your plants and you don't give your plants sunlight and you don't feed them with nutrients, what's going to happen to the plant? It's going to wither away and die. Charles Hodge was not afraid to say, so it is with your soul. Louis Burkhoff would say, if you do not give yourself to the means of grace, it will not be long before your soul withers away and dies. Maybe the most commonly used analogy for the means of grace is that of a channel. A channel, not like a TV channel, but like a channel that water flows down. Like a, a, a channel for a river. You could even think of a pipe, water flowing through the channel of a pipe to, to a source or to a destination, from a source to a destination. John Frame describes the means of grace as channels by which God gives spiritual power to his church. So you picture a river, right? That river is going to flow down what? 
Normally rivers don't just flood all over the place. They normally stick to the boundaries of a riverbed, right? A channel. And if they ever overflow their bank, then they're flooding. But the normal process is for them to flow downstream through a channel that has been cut in the ground. That's what John Frame is describing the means of grace like. They are like spiritual riverbeds in which God's grace will flow down to our souls from heaven. Don Whitney, in his book, uh, Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, calls the means of grace spiritual disciplines. There are habits of devotion and experiential Christianity. The old guys would call it experimental Christianity. Things that you need to give yourself to if you are going to grow in your communion with Christ. Spiritual disciplines. He uh, went on to further describe them as ways that we can put ourselves in the path of God's grace and seek him. And as we in faith place ourselves in these paths to seek communion with Christ, his grace flows to us and we are changed. Now, it's really important to understand this. If you are going to understand how to grow in grace and how to walk in fellowship with God. Just like you will not experience, if we're going to think of these means of grace as channels through which the river of God's grace is going to flow upon us, we think of it like that, you are not going to experience the refreshing joys of that grace if you are not putting yourself in the channel. Right? Just like on a hot day, I live down by the river, St. Croix River, hot day, it's awesome to go get out in the river. It's cool water, right? cools you off. It's very nice on a hot day. But if I want to experience the joys of that cool water running over me and cooling me off and giving me uh, uh, joy and delight even on a hot day, I'm not going to experience that unless I actually get myself up and go walk out into the river. It's the only way I'm going to experience that. Well, so you will not, in the same way, you will not experience growth in God's grace in Christ in your life if you will not diligently and consistently put yourself in these channels where God has chosen for the river of his abundant grace to flow upon us. That's interesting. You know Psalm 104, 14. It says that God is the one who makes grass and crops and vegetation grow. But let me ask you, how does he choose to make that grass grow? Does he do it without the use of means? No, he doesn't. Grass grows because of sunlight. Grass grows with rainwater. Even vegetation and crops, they grow through the, the men and women who plow the field, right? God uses these means to bring about growth, but nonetheless, underneath it all, it's still God who is the one bringing about the growth, well, it's the same in the Christian life. God has chosen to bring all of his people to full maturity in Christ. And what I thought was our memory verse for today proves that. Right? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If God starts a good work in you of salvation, God will complete a good work in you of salvation. But he chooses to accomplish that work by the use of means. Means that give fuller and greater expression to what it looks like to live 
a vibrant, in a vibrant relationship with him. This is important. I, I don't mean to belabor this, but God could have just zapped all of us and made us perfectly conformed to the image of Christ the moment we were saved. Why didn't he do that? Why does he leave us to, to learn how to walk with him in this difficult and dark world? Why does he let trials come upon us? Why does he leave us here and not just bring us to glory? It's so that we would learn how to walk in fellowship with him even through trials. God leaves us here so that we would learn how to give ourselves over to the things he has established to create a vibrant relationship with him. See, God would have us have a real relationship with him, and that relationship is dependent on faith and having enough faith to do what he calls us to do. We're not going to learn that any other way than actually being put in a situation where we have to walk it out. So what are we talking about when we're talking about the means of grace? We're talking about the things God has chosen to use to further the impact and influence of grace in our lives. Now, what specifically are these channels of God's grace? What are we talking about specifically when we're talking about the means of grace? Well, depending on who you're reading, the means of grace can be identified in many different ways. There are lists that range from 3 and 2 all the way up to 12. You know, you, you, can, you can identify things in different ways, but most, most people include three primary channels that God uses to increase our understanding and experience of his grace. So here's the first one. The first one is the word of God. The first means of grace that God has appointed for our growth in grace is his word. Now, using the Word of God as a means of grace involves hearing the Word read. It involves reading the Word. It involves studying the Word. It involves memorizing the Word. It involves meditating on the Word. It involves hearing the Word of God preached. Those are means that God has established to further grace in your soul, and it's all dependent upon His Word. In fact, in one sense, you could say that really, in essence, this is the only true means of grace in and of itself. Because all the other means that God has appointed for our growth are simply servants of the Word. They are servants that come alongside the Word of God and work the Word of God more deeply into our hearts. And so the first means of grace is God's Word. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone the reformers would cry. And we say, amen. Amen. That's the first means of grace. Now, secondly, a second means, God has appointed what are called the ordinances. Excuse me, the ordinances. Now, there are two ordinances in the church. Do you know what they are? Baptism and the Lord's Supper, or the Lord's Table. Yep. So, baptism pictures what it means to be united to Christ, but baptism is also a means of grace. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, we're going to see this in the weeks to come. Baptism is a means that God has appointed for us to call upon His name for salvation. Appealing to God for a clean conscience in the name of Christ through baptism. 
and then the Lord's table. It's a means of strengthening and proclaiming our hope in Christ until the day he comes. These are visual pictures of the word. These are visual pictures of the realities that the Word of God communicates to us. Dying with Christ, being united with Christ, dying to the world with Christ, being crucified with Christ, being raised up by the Spirit to walk in newness of life with Christ. All of that is pictured in baptism. Dying to sin, dying with Christ, going down into the grave in union with Christ under the waters and then coming up out of the waters to new life to walk with Him. It's pictured in baptism. The Lord's table, picturing what it means to feed upon the body and blood of Christ. It doesn't mean to take... (laughs) It doesn't mean to go take the Eucharist. It doesn't mean that the bread literally becomes the body or the cup literally becomes the blood. It represents what it means to come to Christ and feed on Him by faith. You're proclaiming your hope in Him. You're longing, you're anticipating for His return. And you're seeking to devote yourself to living for His glory in the now. All those are are means of grace that God has given us to work His Word more fully into our lives that it would be more greatly expressed through us. Then a third means of grace that most people acknowledge would be prayer. You have the Word of God, you have the ordinances, and then you have the means of prayer. Now, there's a lot of confusion about what prayer is, and we're going to deal with that when we get to discussing this means of grace. But prayer is not silent meditation. Prayer is not emptying your mind. Uh, Prayer is not uh, chanting. Prayer is the fruit of God pouring his word into our souls And then through the ministry of the Spirit, knitting our hearts to the truth. And through that communion and fellowship with God in His Word, it is then pouring out a Word-saturated heart back unto the Lord. Prayer is is shaped and fashioned and prepared in you by your exposure to God's Word and the ministry of the Spirit upon you with the Word. And with word-enlightened and Holy Spirit-illumined hearts, prayer is the spiritual worship of offering back to God what He has poured into us. So these are the three primary means that we find in, in the Scriptures, the means of grace. These three are primarily what are emphasized in the Word of God. But there are others that could be added to this list. In this series, we're probably going to include the following. I say probably because I'm not quite sure yet. Maybe more, there may be less. But definitely, one means of grace that we find in the Word is corporate worship. Fellowship among believers in a corporate assembly. That involves the preaching of the Word. That involves the praying. That involves the singing. That involves the speaking of the Word to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That involves celebrating the Lord's table. So we're going to see that is a corporate assembly Ordinance, that's not to be done on your own at home. That is to be done with the fellowship of the saints. We'll see that in weeks to come. Now, as a means of grace, that means that we cannot afford to neglect it if we want to worship God and grow in His grace. 
No exception clauses to corporate fellowship in the scriptures. Not even viruses. Just throw that one out there. Another one might be uh, walking in faith. Walking in faith. Normally we think of faith as the means of being saved, and it is that. But it's also something to be used as we walk in fellowship with God. The exercise of faith in the word as we go throughout our lives. You could add a sixth one, walking in godly fear. You could add a seventh, walking in repentance. Using the grace of repentance to grow in our grace and understanding of the Lord. You could add walking in obedience to the word. You could add doing evangelism. And there are others that could be added. Now, all of these are just channels. They are pathways and ways that God has appointed that we can use in order to seek him. And ways where he has promised his grace will be found. Now, man, I can't believe how much time is just... You know, someday I'm going I'm to come down from here. I'm going to ask you, does time fly by for you the way it flies by for me? I mean, I hope it does. I hope you're not out there just like, oh, man, he's going on and on and on. It's like, I mean, for me, it's like, man, I just got up here. I'm ready to, I'm ready to go for another hour. You guys are like, no, no, not another hour. I don't know. Well, these are some of the means of grace that we find in scriptures, and you literally find these everywhere in scripture, especially in the Psalms. I don't know if you know what John Calvin called the Psalms, but the book of Psalms he called uh, the anatomy of the soul. The Psalms were the anatomy of the soul. That is, the Psalms presented, present to us the struggles of a godly soul seeking communion and fellowship with God in different seasons and trials of life. So the Psalms show us, they give us a picture of how God wants us to use the means of grace to walk with Him. So for example, in Psalm chapter 5, verse 3, Psalm 5, 3 magnifies the means of prayer. Although the word prayer, you see it in italics there in the New American Standard, that means that that's not in the original text, the Hebrew, but that is what the Hebrew is talking about. I don't believe the ESV is right in its translation there. The psalmist says, in the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Now, notice the different elements that are involved right there in this use of the means of grace called prayer. It is regular prayer in the morning. It is ordered prayer. I will order my prayer before you. It is faith-filled prayer. I will order my prayer to you and watch. I'll anticipate your answer. So Psalm 5.3 magnifies prayer. You see faith as a means of grace in Psalm 63 verse 8. And here I love how Psalm 63.8 defines faith or describes faith, I should say. The psalmist says, my soul clings to you. Lord, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. 
My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. You see the partner there? Partnership? God grants the blessing of his keeping, supporting, sustaining, upholding grace to those who are clinging to him. By faith, holding fast to him. Those who do so, God sustains them with his right hand. Psalm 119, verses 58 through 60. We see the uh, means of obedience in the Christian life. I sought your favor with all my heart. Pay attention to what the psalmist is saying here. I sought your favor. That's Hebrew word for grace. I sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. What's the psalmist asking for? He's asking for a greater experience of God's grace. Saying, Lord, let your grace be upon me. Let me find it. Pour it out richly on me. Now notice what the psalmist does after that. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't simply ask for God's grace. He prayed for grace, but then he determined to put himself in the pathway where God promised his grace would be found. He says, give me your favor, give me your grace according to your word. I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. He's not just presuming and assuming that God is going to give him this grace. He obeys God and takes his feet to the paths where God swears, here's where you will find my grace. Obeying my will. Psalm 66, verse 18, magnifies repentance as a means of grace. The psalmist says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Now, I don't care what your view of grace and salvation is. You have to interpret what that verse is saying. Don't read into it. What does it say on face value? If I regard iniquity in my heart, you will not hear my prayer. God's grace in hearing and answering prayer is found in the way of repentance. And notice here, repentance is not defined as merely physically turning out of the way of sin. The psalmist talks about not regarding iniquity in his heart. It's what Jesus clarified for the Jews, the misunderstanding that the Jews had in Matthew 5. Jesus says, no, 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 no. No, repentance isn't just about not walking in the pathway of sin. Repentance is not desiring sin. It's turning with your heart away from the path of sin unto the Lord. So here, these are just some examples of the use of the means of grace that we find in the Scriptures now, let me acknowledge this, and we're going to get more into this. All of these means of grace, these are gifts from God. We're not working to earn anything from God. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. We're not earning anything from God by using these means. These are gifts from His grace. But let me tell you, once we have that gift, God expects that we use it. Parable of the talents, what happened to the one that just buried it? Didn't use it. He was condemned. God expects us to use the gifts of grace that he puts in our lives. 
So worshiping him, part of worshiping him means using these gifts of grace. Now, as we come to a close, there are three principles that I want to highlight about how we use these grace, these gifts of grace, means of grace. Ready? Three principles for how to use these rightly. Number one, our diligent use of the means of grace must flow. Hear this. Our diligent use of the means of grace must flow out of a deep sense of our union with Christ. We must keep in mind that the means of grace have no power to give grace in and of themselves. That's what Roman Catholicism teaches. They believe that the means of grace work ex opera operato. They work of themselves. By the work itself being done, grace comes to the soul. Now, officially... In the Protestant Reformation, when we recovered God's gospel of grace, we broke with this idea a long time ago, officially. And yet, how many Protestants who would say that they are sons and daughters of the Reformation continue to live their lives as if they were still under the Roman system? Maybe you're wondering what I'm talking about. How about believing that they will receive God's grace simply because they run their eyes over the words of the page in the scriptures? Check mark, Bible reading. I did my Bible reading today. I'm good. Couldn't remember what you read an hour later, but you read it anyway, right? Or maybe they think they're going to get grace for their lives because they said a quaint little prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Amen. I used to say that every night when I was a, when I was a pagan. I used to say it every night, and I received no grace from that prayer. God is great. God is good. Thank you, Lord, for this food. Amen. Nope. No grace in that prayer either for me. Or maybe some think they're going to receive grace simply because they partake in communion or they try to live a moral life or maybe because they've been baptized or because they do any of the other means that we find in Scripture. What we have to understand, when we come to use the means of grace, there is no effectual power in the means themselves. You're not going to gain grace just because you run to the Scriptures to read them. You're not going to gain grace just because you utter a prayer. You are going to gain grace from God through your faith in union with Christ. Reading the scriptures is merely an expression of a lively faith in Jesus. If it's anything other than that, God's not going to bless it. Because it's not magnifying Christ in that moment, it's magnifying you and your efforts in seeking Him. And God will not have it. 
partaking in communion, if, it is not, if, it's not, if it's not something that's joyfully and delightfully being celebrated whenever you take the bread and you take the cup and you are rejoicing in the full, full satisfaction that Jesus has made for you, and the righteousness that he's given you that allows you to stand before God perfect and without blemish, if you're not rejoicing in the day when Christ comes to make the world new and to bring you into his eternal kingdom, If you're not celebrating the Lord's table in faith like that, then you're doing it in vain. There's no no magic, there's no mystical power that's going to be communicated to you whenever you eat a piece of unleavened bread or drink really bad grape juice. It's not going to happen. God will never bless anyone's efforts who use these means of grace apart from a conscious Union by faith in Christ. Now, the means of grace were not established as a way to earn God's favor. They were established as a way to grow in the reality and the realization of the favor you already have in Christ. So, for example, Colossians 2, 9 through 10, says these glorious words. In Him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell bodily or dwells in bodily form. And look at this. Look at this. And in him you have been made complete. Think about this in using the means of grace. We're not using the means of grace to bring about a completion to our salvation. We're not using the means of grace, our puny efforts in using the means of grace to add anything to the work that Jesus Christ has already done for us. No, if we've been united by Christ, by faith, if we have been circumcised in Him with the circumcision made without hands, the removal of the body of the flesh through the circumcision of Christ, if we've been forgiven of our sins and have been brought to new life in Jesus, there is nothing for us to add to what Jesus has done. He's a perfect Savior. He gives us full salvation. We only use the means of grace to grow in a greater experience and realization of the fullness of salvation He's already given to us. You can see that in Romans 4, 25 through 5, 2 as well. I don't have time to do that, but (laughs) Jesus was given over for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. And now, having been declared righteous before God by faith in Jesus, we now stand in grace. It's not something we're trying to get into. It's not a ledge we're trying to climb up on by the use of the means of grace. It is a platform on which we are already standing. This is the broad place that the psalmist asked for the Lord to place his feet upon. We stand in this broad place of grace, and we cannot fall from it in Christ. The means of grace are there to strengthen our feet and to make them stand more firmly upon that platform, that broad place. So number one, our use of the means of grace needs to flow out of a deep sense of our union with Christ. Number two, and we'll be quick on these, as quick as I can be. All right, this one, (laughs) they're all really important, but please listen up on this one. As we seek to use the means of grace 
pinpoint specific areas of weakness in your walk with Christ and attack those areas with the means of grace. Identify areas in your life where the grace of God is not manifesting as fully either as you want or as God wants. And use the means of grace to attack those areas viciously, ruthlessly. Don't be afraid or hesitate to make full use of the means of grace in those areas where you need it most. And so often we, we think that when we've sinned or we've stumbled or we feel weakness in ourselves that we can't come to the Lord. We can't run to Him in prayer. We, we're hypocrites if we turn to His Word. No, we've got it all backwards, see. Those means of grace are there for those who cannot do it themselves. Right? You need prayer in the moment that you sin. God knows that. We need to be those who launch an all-out offensive against the areas in our lives where we know we are not living up to Christ's will for us. My favorite illustrations of this, I need to run through it quickly, but Haggai chapter 1, I love this illustration. In Haggai chapter 1, you have the people of Judah who have returned from exile, and now they're in the lands of Judah. They're living in Jerusalem. But their first priorities were not rebuilding the temple and reestablishing worship unto the Lord. Their first priorities were to build their paneled houses. Trading the worship of God for their own lives and their own satisfactions and their own desires and their own pleasures and not building up the worship of Yahweh. In verse 7, the Lord says, Consider your ways. Realize what you've done in prioritizing your own lives over the worship of God. And then, verse 8, repent. God says, consider your ways and go up to the mountains and bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. Go get the wood. Build up this house. Use the means that are available to you. And renew your worship to the Lord. Can I extract from that by way of analogy an illustration for us? I wonder what areas in your life are still lying in ruins and have not been built up by the grace of the Lord. What areas in your life are there that belong to the Lord Areas that Christ has claimed with his own blood that still remain unbuilt, undedicated, undevoted to him. Beloved, you, you've got to take this word from Haggai and you've got to bring it into your own life. In the old covenant, God says, Go up to the mountain and get the wood and build the temple. You know, some of you, you need to go to Mount Zion. And you need to get the wood of the cross and you need to cling to the grace of Christ that he purchased for you on that mountain and you need to bring it down into your own life and start building the temple. Your heart is a temple of the Lord. It is a temple of the Holy Spirit and you are charged by God to keep that temple pure. 
Where in your life do you need to go get the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and purify the temple for the glory of His name? Struggling to know how to live and offer God acceptable worship? Well, then Romans 12 to it. Renew your mind in the truth of God's Word so that you can discern that good and perfect and acceptable will of God and know how to live. Since yourself drifting from Christ and you don't feel like you're growing in your intimacy with Him, then take up the means of prayer with the Apostle Paul and even take up the megaphone of fasting and make your voice heard on high and plead with God to give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. You feel in yourself a tremendous lack in your ability to recognize and discern the presence and the working of the Holy Spirit in you? Then take up the means of faith-filled obedience and start obeying the command of Ephesians 5.18. Be being filled with the Spirit. How are you going to do that? How about Ephesians 4.30? You order your steps in a manner that does not grieve Him. What does that mean? Practically speaking, Galatians 5.16. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You give yourself to the means of obedience to God's will. You will grow in your ability to discern and recognize and know the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And there are others that I had to list there, but there's one last one that we need to get to, and I'm sorry, again, that I've gone so long. I don't know. Should I apologize for that? I don't know. Most, you guys need to give me some freedom in my own mind, I need, I need to hear you give me that freedom. So. Last one. The last principle to keep in mind. The use of the means of grace, to use them rightly, they need to be used according to God's purpose for them. And we've already hinted at this a lot, but I want to draw it out a little more particularly. These means of grace are not given to us so that we would earn God's grace. These means of grace are not provided for us so that after we sin, we can somehow go make it up to God. No, God has established the means of grace so that we would use them to grow in our communion with Him. In our fellowship with His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 29, verses 12 through 13. Referring to prayer, God calls His people to use prayer as a means, not of getting what they want in their lives. Not of making requests for physical health or provision or anything like that. God calls His people to use prayer in order to seek Him. The intention of God and giving us the gift of prayer is that we would use it to seek Him. And God says, when you seek for Me and with all your heart, you will find Me. God will not bless our efforts in prayer when they are meant for anything less than that. He will not be a means to our end. And I hope you recognize that when you pray to God for other things and you're not primarily praying to God for Him, you're trying to use God in order to get something else. You're using Him as a means to an end. And God will not be the means to anyone's end. He is the end. Amen. And the means of grace are established in order to lead us to Him as our end. 
then just one more, John 14, 23. Jesus magnifies obedience as the means of fellowship with him. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments. He will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And then what will be the result? We will come to him and we will make our abode with him. See, so often we think of obedience as a chore, as something we've got to work up and just get done. But Jesus says, if you love me, then you're going to obey. And know this, when you exercise that means of grace, that is merely the pathway to increased fellowship with me. See, obedience is not a chore. It's a means that Christ has established for you and I to gain greater experience and enjoyment of His presence. So these three things we need to keep in mind as we go through studying these means of grace and we begin to, we begin to apply them in our lives. We've got to exercise them out of deep union with Christ, deep sense of union with Christ. We've got to use them to attack the areas of weakness in our lives and then we must use them for the purpose that they're intended. Greater fellowship with God. May the Lord give us grace and mercy, fill us with His Spirit so that these things will be realized in our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, please hear our prayer. Bless this endeavor. Help us walk in the ways of your word. Help us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Benediction comes from our text for today. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall away from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.